So welcome to episode 19 with Professor Dame Claire Gerarda. My name's Nish Manek, I'm the GP Registrar in Cambridge. Now Claire is probably known to many of you, in fact she's been called the most well-known GP in Britain. She is Medical Director of NHS Practitioner Health, a service for doctors and dentists with mental health problems. She's chair of a charity called Doctors in Distress and she's also co-chair of the NHS Assembly. Claire's just passed her 31-year milestone working in the same GP practice in South London and she began working there having first trained in psychiatry at the Maudsley Hospital where incidentally she met her husband who you may also have heard of, Sir Simon Wesley. Claire's worked at this interface between mental health and primary care ever since with a special interest in the care of substance misusers, the homeless and now doctors with mental health problems. And for the last decade, she's led the largest physician mental health service in Europe. And the link for that service is in the show notes. Claire was chair of the Royal College of GPs in 2011 and was actually only the second woman in its history to be at the helm. And during that time, she famously spoke up against the implementation of the 2012 Health and Social Care Act, which we will talk about. She was awarded a damehood in 2020 for services to general practice. So in this conversation, we explored where that courage and her convictions comes from, what advice she would give others about speaking out, and particularly young people taking on new leadership roles, and very interestingly, what she says she might have done differently looking back over her career. We're still recording these conversations over Zoom, of course, and there are a few crackles and clicks in the line that were really tricky to edit, so please forgive us. So here's Dame Claire Gerarda. Dame Claire Gerarda, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you and welcome to the Next Gen Cast. I mean, we've known each other for quite a long time, Claire. <laughs> I, really... I think since you were 14. <laughs> well, I feel like I still am about 14. One of my earliest memories is I was an, a fifth year medical student at Imperial and mm. I shadowed you for a day. And my biggest take home that day was carry a pair of trainers in your handbag. <laughs> we just bolting from one place <laughs> to the other. You know, I was in awe of your energy. Mm. So I'd love to really spend this conversation understanding how and what you've chosen to put your energy into and what gives you energy in return mm. and what shaped those choices as a leader. So let's start at the start, if you don't mind. And I really believe that early experiences shape who we are. So I understand that you grew up in Nigeria and then your dad was a GP in Peterborough. And I heard you say before that you, you, you didn't have a doll, you had a skeleton to play <laughs> with instead. Tell me about those early years, Claire, and how did that influence the leader that mm. you've become? Well, I came to England when I was quite young, actually. So I was born in Nigeria, but then we settled in Peterborough. My father had to get a job. So he got a job in Peterborough and his surgery was our home, as I've talked about before. So his, our house was the surgery. I mean, it, there was no differentiation. Patients invaded my space. There was always children around the place. And the house was littered with the paraphernalia of medicine. And I didn't play with dolls. I did play with a skeleton. And I used to put gloves on its fingers and socks on its feet, even my school berry on its skull. And my toys were, for example, I learned that if you got 
a bladder syringe. I didn't know that's what it was called, by the way. But if you put a needle on it and then flick the needle off, so you were just left with a hub. It was a fabulous water pistol. So, you know, it, it, it was indistinguishable. I was, the medicine was all around me. And I also talk about dad taking me on home visits, which he did. And if I was really lucky, he'd take me into the house and he'd tell me, this was when I was eight or nine, how to distinguish a measles rash from a chickenpox rash. Uh, he'd talk in the car on the way back about how they'd just discovered treatment for schizophrenia. And, and I was just enthralled. And my books were medical books, even at a young age. So I, my favourite book was one that he had that had post-mortems in it. And it was to tell you how to, how to tell how long after death when you saw somebody and to distinguish between strangulation and all sorts of drowning, for example. And I remember taking this book to school, showed it to my friend who promptly fainted. And that was the last time I took the book to school. So there was no doubt ever that I'd ever not choose medicine. I was going to be a doctor. It, it, it never crossed my mind, which might sound arrogant, but it wasn't which is fortunate because many people in my school, many of the teachers never thought I would stand a chance. But so that's it. That's my journey to medicine. So you were the daughter of immigrant parents. And I Mm. wondered, did that ever make you feel like you had something to prove? Oh, yes. I mean, dad used to tell me that I had to be better than the English. Now, dad loved the English, as did my mother. And they described coming and landing at Liverpool docks with four children under the age of three years and six months. So you can imagine this gloomy winter's day and they drove to a, a home that we were renting. It was difficult to find somewhere because, you know, it's hard to get accommodation with four children, a foreign sounding surname and coming from West Africa. And Dad described that when they arrived at this house, the door was open and he couldn't understand why the door was open. And in there was this this vast woman who was lighting a fire. And she said, oh, she'd heard we were coming. And so she wanted to make sure the house was warm before we arrived. And this was Dad and Mum's first example of English hospitality. And they loved the English. They loved the understated nature of the English. They loved the hospitality. And most of all, they love the Queen, which is what I've been brought in. So I always knew I was a foreigner, but in a in a good way, if you like, in that I, I was different. I had to do better because I needed to give something back to the country that had given us home, occupation, education, everything. Dad was, I think, marginalised. He was another. He never fitted in. And, and I tell this story about when he was a appointing a new partner and he went through rapidly these CVs and what into two piles and I said to dad what are you doing how are you looking at them so quickly and thinking he must be sexist and one's a woman one's a man and he was actually rejecting all the applicants who had membership of the Royal College of GPs which wasn't compulsory then but he he felt he didn't belong and all of his partners were either Maltese or Asian so I grew up with a lot of Asian friends, Asian doctors all around me, going on holiday with Asian families. So but he never really fitted in with what he saw as the establishment, which was the Royal College. There's some irony there, isn't there? Given Very irony. <laughs> and he was too demented when I 
had my 50th birthday at the Royal College of GPs. And by this point, I think I was either vice chair or head of ethics, but certainly in the establishment. And he was too demented to, to actually realise where we were. And by the time I became chair, he was well gone. So he never, ever understood that his daughter had made it to the higher echelons of the organisation that he felt so uh, so alienated from. Gosh, that's sad, but he, I mean, he would have been so proud. Of he would have been so proud, and I would have loved him to sit in. I mean, I don't know whether you remember the Royal College still has this chair that the chair sits in it's a it's a very it's got tapestry and it's slightly higher which I needed because I'm quite short <laughs> and and I really I tried to get him to sit in it and understand what it was and he had no idea what this chair meant and yeah. no idea what the chain of office was or you know just absolutely no idea but he encouraged you to to give something back to society and I I know that that extended beyond the consulting room so you yes. you were very young and you already started on your leadership journey. So tell me about what you did for substance misuse. In those days, so I was doing psychiatry and then I was waiting to spend a year in general practice, my trainee year. And I did that terrible thing, Nisha, which you'll understand, as I got pregnant. And uh, in those days, there was no obligation by the practice to hold open your training year. Absolutely none. So I had about 10 months left to spare after the baby was born. And so I went back to where I'd been working and I said, could I work as a supernumerary in substance misuse? And they said, yes. So I set up a a well-user clinic, a sort of barefoot doctor service in one of the local needle exchange units. And I used to do cervical smears there and take blood. And this was extraordinarily dangerous if you think about it. But, you know, with all these patients are HIV positive. And when I started training with a wonderful Luke Zander, and Bill Marson, they allowed me to do this session a week still in this in this well user service. And so I just expanded from there. I set up a homeless service for, for drug users. I looked after intravenous pregnant drug users, which is really tough. And I became, I suppose, a big a big fish in a very small sea. You know, there weren't many people like me, not people who there just weren't people like me doing what I was doing there were a few but we were few and far between and it was groundbreaking because in those days nobody was caring for intravenous drug users let alone a sort of you know female pregnant woman because I carried on doing it after I had my second baby and if you think about it CQC would have been down on me like a ton of bricks doing cervical smears in a in a needle exchange and taking blood and transporting the blood in my handbag. It's fun. And it carried on from there. And I, I did drugs for years, but I now do gambling. So it's okay. just moved from okay. one addiction to another. <laughs> Is that what Simon's driven you to after all these years? <laughs> yes. So you were, you were really, what, you must have been in your mid-20s at the time. Well, I started caring for intravenous drug users at about the age of 28. And then I carried on. Uh, from then onwards so yeah I was young but I didn't feel that young I just felt that this was something that I had to do and it it, it was strange because I still remember these patients I remember the the street agency I used to work in and I was once robbed by one of them so I took my bag there and somebody a drug user had come in and walked three quarters of the way around the room taken my bag and walked three quarters of the way around the room back out and that taught me a real lesson so I was a good doctor and skilled and competent at being a good doctor. And he was very skilled and competent at being a thief. 
And I actually had a lot of admiration for him that he'd managed to come into this room with me sitting there, walk right across the room and steal from me. So I must have been in this frame of mind that I learned so much from these patients, including what it was like to be a good thief. And I learned that you didn't have to give much back to these drug users for them to feel that you were doing something for them. You just had to shake their hand, really. And I also learned about my own profession, that they didn't really like drug users at the time. Many of them had signs outside the door, no drug users to be seen here. But it was fun. It was fun and I could do it. And I always talk about leadership as as changing things around you. So for me, what you were doing there is absolutely, it's leadership. What did it teach you about being a leader right at the start of your career? I didn't feel I was a leader, Nish. They didn't, not at all. What I knew was that I had to work hard and I had to write up everything you do. So it doesn't exist if you don't write it up. You have to write up your next gen, what you've done. And it's hard work. Leadership is hard work. It's not just about telling people what to do. It's about doing it yourself. And if I was to look back, I wrote everything up as I went along. And what I now realise is I was an innovator. And I was very creative. I was probably had ADHD, if the truth be known, that I always saw something that needed to be done. So, for example, even before it was anybody's interested, I decided Hep B vaccinations needed to be given to drug users. And I called it something like Be Alert and used to go around. And the problem about Hep B is you had to give a second vaccine, which is really difficult to give the second, a bit like COVID. But I developed a way of creating little cards with bumblebees on it. I'd give it to the drug users and say, this is your bumblebee, come back. I realise now in retrospect that I was creative. And sometimes that was a bit too much because people, as you with your trainers, couldn't keep up. But you know what? You have to have people that are creative to change the world. So you learnt very much by experience. And I love that that description of just, just seeing a need and just doing something about doing. it. That totally resonates with me. But did you formalise your journey into leadership with any kind of actual training? I did do a course because in my mid-30s, I was asked if I want to go on a leadership course. Nobody wanted to do it. And they had spare, they had six spare places. So, and it was fully funded and there was locum given. So what and I always say yes, always say yes, and then sort it out. So I said yes, and then went to my partnership. So can I do this leadership course? And that changed my life. That changed the trajectory of my life. I, I on doing that course, I sort of understood what leadership was, and I understood I was a leader, and it gave me the confidence to take on what was then head of the commissioning. It was it was something called Slug South London Umbrella Group for GPs. And also gave me the courage to take on a senior policy advisor role at the Department of Health. And it taught me some fabulous leadership lessons, which I still use today. And I still see. uh, So one of the lessons was how to deal with disappointment, real disappointment. When, And if you think about PPE in this pandemic, leaders, medical leaders, non-medical leaders, have had to deal with disappointment. So they've had to deal with the problem of promising PPE to their staff and then finding it's the wrong PPE or it's not enough. And leadership is dealing with what to do next. It's So non-leaders, you're like a shopkeeper. You, You haven't got enough sweeties to hand out, so you just tell them you haven't got enough sweeties. Real leadership is dealing with 
the expectation that you expected that you'd have enough. And not only have you been let down, but you've had to let others down in the process. And this is what it taught me. And I see it so often played out and, and other lessons. We had to put a tent up in the dark, which was amazing. And <laughs> um, could you give us an example then of if you look back on your career, maybe when you were chair of the college, do you ever feel that you let people down that were following? Oh, gosh, you? yes. In what way? Uh, the, the more you do, the less you can give personally of, of yourself. So you're constantly, you're constantly letting somebody down. You're constantly not there for them, whether that's your family, your children, your patients. I let my patients down by not being with them as often as they needed me. I loved my patients and, and I still see them in the street. Oh, Dr. Gerard, did you remember when I came to see you with? And I think, no, I don't really, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. And then they tell me about their vaginal bleeding or their, <laughs> their bones. <laughs> yes, I mean, I would have done things slightly different. I would have been braver. It sounds odd, but I think I would have been braver as chair if I'd known now what I knew then. I would have, I was still very angry at being derailed by the Health and Social Care Act, because that just occupied my entire chairmanship. And I would have loved to have focused much more on the nonsense that if you're two years away from practice, you've got to more or less retrain. I would have really pushed through four or five year training. It's never happened. And I think it's big problems for GPs not having longer training. So yeah, I mean, but I worked hard. I think I overall worked very hard. I think if I let anybody down during that time, it was my family, because they never saw me. I mean, can we dive right in there, Claire, actually? There's so many things that you've said I want to pick up on. Let's just talk about the Health and Social Care Act first, because I I was only a medical student at the time, but the thing that struck me at that at that moment was you had such courage in your convictions. And whatever people thought of you or what you stood for, there was courage in standing alone. But I, mm. I think that would have been difficult on a personal level to be that was, lonely yeah. voice. tell me it's very that. difficult leadership is lonely it, it cannot be delegated you cannot delegate a decision uh, now a decision might be to do nothing but you can't delegate it now till the others came alongside me I wasn't completely alone I had the Royal College of Nurses and some other organizations alongside me but the big boys weren't alongside me the big medical surgical royal colleges weren't and I was I felt I felt like I'd felt in the playground at school I felt like I was an outsider I felt I didn't deserve to be there I had to constantly go through like a catechism what I believed in I believe in the NHS I believe in free at the point of use I believe that we should distribute the resources according to need and not according to want I believed that if you create an internal market or even an external market unless it's really controlled then you you just spend money on transaction costs so I had to keep on telling myself that and eventually of course others came on board and we now know that there are, you know, I was right. And, and I suspect that's why I got my damehood, because in the end, I've been forgiven. I bet at the time it didn't, oh. didn't feel like that. It felt terrible. But the college GPs were fabulous. Uh, the officers, the uh, owner Heath, Mike Pringle, Colin Hunter, Amanda Howe, just to name a few, they were the senior officers at the time. Maureen Baker, my members used to write to me. One sent 
some tea bags post. <laughs> they used to send me sweet. They were wonderful. In in the whole time that I was chair, I think I had three nasty letters. You know, that was it. But rest of them, and in fact, I've been going through some of them, absolutely wonderful. And so they kept me going. And that's another thing of leadership is get yourself a support group. Get yourself a kitchen cabinet. Don't focus on things that you do wrong. Focus on what you can do right. And those are things that I learned. Do you regret anything during your time as chair? I regret. Yes, I do. I, I think if I was to do it again... I think I might have been a little bit more, a uh, little bit more diplomatic. That sounds, I don't think I wasn't, but I might have spent, if it happened a year into the job, say, when I knew the people, I knew the names, it would have been easier because you could have rung them up, you know, but I couldn't then. So I think it's not just I blame myself, I blame the circumstance that, that I didn't know who they were. I couldn't, they didn't know me. I, I, though I'd been hovering around the top of the office for quite a while, I didn't know them by first name. Whereas now I think I would probably have gone around the back a bit and said, look, this is what I'm going to say in public. Is there anything we can do that we can come to a middle ground? So maybe I would have done that. The college also was not experienced in dealing with this. So to be fair to me, there really wasn't a policy unit, not really. Comms was good, but it wasn't as robust as it is now. There was nobody that really could give me proper briefing. So I don't think everything was in place that would have made it easier. But Nish, it makes you, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you make the point really well that having those relationships nurtured and embedded in the first place is really important in situations like that. And I'm interested to know, Claire, even now when you step back, what do you think is the role of the college in influencing policy and its role in politics? Uh, health is politics, Nish. It's, it's naive, I think, to think that health is not politics. And, and what happens is people say, well, college shouldn't be involved in politics, but health is around deprivation, is around inequalities, is around politics, big and small p. And you know, what is politics? And it shouldn't be party politics. So of course, it's always made into party politics. But it is about politics. The, the, the fact that we still have only 9% of the NHS budget into general practice is politics. It's politics because there are more votes in reducing cancer waiting times than there are in reducing the workload for GPs. So that is politics. So I think anybody listening to this if you want to be a good GP, you've got to get immersed, not just in the consulting room, but outside the consulting room. And you've got to ideally to do to change the world, even the small things you can change, but join a trade union. Make sure you can use your unbelievable influence as a doctor for the greater good. Thank you, Claire. And I want to talk about your your role in not necessarily just politics, but influence. So we're talking about your time as college chair, which is over 10 years ago now, but you've you've by no means been forgotten. In fact, you're one of the most well-known GPs in the country. I imagine you're invited to comment and contribute to NHS policy at the highest of levels. How do you think you have managed to stay so influential? Yeah, it's an interesting question that. It's interesting. I think because I had a platform when I left the college, I had this very briefly, 
head of primary care for NHS London. But actually, I think the real platform I have is with sick doctors and that gets you into places. Plus, I love the media. I'm, <laughs> I love... <laughs> I, we know I, you do, Claire. <laughs> I love being on the radio, especially. I write a lot. And I've and GPs will understand this. As a GP, you've got a lot to say about a lot of things. You might not know a lot, but you have a lot to say. So, And when you grow older you, you, and you've worked hard, you also know a lot about a lot of stuff. So I'm often asked to give my opinion on things. And I realise, well, I've been there, done that. And I have a, a stupid memory for facts. Have you ever made any major gaffes in the media? Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. It doesn't uh, stop you, though. I've, right, the thing, you must, I've never made a catastrophic gaffe, but I have made errors. And I saw something I did once on the politics show when I was, when I was, had got this letter together about the NHS cuts and I was attacked on it. And I wasn't very good, actually. And, and I'll tell you the biggest error that's happened. I'll tell you the biggest, biggest error. So I wasn't chair anymore, but and I was really annoyed with one of the political parties. So I joined another political party. I'll let be honest. I joined the Lib Dems because they felt like they were cuddly. And there was an election coming up and I agreed with the Lib Dems that they could put me on one of their, their election material uh, as Claire Gerrada promotes the NHS and they got it wrong they said and they wrote a letter to something like half a million people saying I had resigned from the Royal College of GPs because I wasn't allowed to speak out now can you imagine Royal College of GPs oh I love and of course it wasn't true they'd made a mistake they had made a catastrophic mistake and they they had sent me this as a to, to sign off before it went, but I hadn't looked at it properly I just thought oh you know anyway I was distraught. I had to apologise to the college and said, you know, this is dreadful. I had to get them to issue a disclaimer. That could have been the end of my career. But of course, it was an honest mistake. And it was easily proven wrong because I had never resigned. So my leadership lesson, always check when somebody asks you to sign something off. I remember that. I was terrible. (laughs) It was. Um, You talked about your BMJ column, and I loved this thing that you wrote a few weeks ago. It was your top tips around leadership, which we'll link in the show notes. One of the tips that you wrote in there, which I just want to ask you about, you wrote, be prepared to be, in brackets, a subtle, close brackets, self-publicist. What does that mean? Yeah, well, I've only just learned it, and people will will laugh and say, oh, you've always been a sub self-publicist so I've done it on this podcast I don't know how much you'll show but I've done it on this podcast I've said I'm creative uh I I innovated I'd never have done that even five years ago even three years ago oh I'm not very good at this oh you know you're really better and you hear this from women oh I don't really know oh I'm sure other people can do it better I now say no I can do this really well I've published 150 papers I've done this so it's not about being arrogant, but it's about actually saying what you do well. And the other thing is, I now challenge people when they get it wrong about me. So not so long ago, somebody said that I shoot from the hip when I'm in the media. And I challenged them. I said, no, I don't. I'm very, very careful what I say in the media. Very careful. For every minute on the Today program, I, I work for an hour. So I challenged it. Whereas probably a few years ago, I was, oh, yeah, giggle, giggle. Somebody else said... Uh, uh, what was it they called me? Something I don't know what it was. Pushy. Pushy. Now, you don't call a man pushy, but you call a woman pushy. So I then challenged that. I said, 
you have to be pushy as a woman because you have to get on and you have to push your way to the front, especially when you're surrounded by very tall people. So this is what I mean. I don't mean bragging, but I mean just challenging. And if I was to give advice to any woman, you've got to do that because nobody will do it on your behalf. That's such good advice. I need to take that on board. It's owning what you're good at, isn't it? And it's challenging. It's you're very, very good at what you've done, you know, and uh, I'd hope that you would say I've set up the next gen work. This was innovative, absolutely has created a cadre of young doctors who feel they belong, who connect with each other. You've got senior doctors from right across the board repeatedly. You would say that. Own it. Thank you. I think what we tend to do as well is defer to other people, don't we? So oh. I would say I we did this and I you know, we did it because this person helped us. And so it's all- you can say that. I mean, you're no man is an island entirely to themselves. And you couldn't have done it if other things hadn't come mm. in faith. But you did it. You saw the, the, the opportunity. You found the funding. You talked to the people. And for the first five years, you led it from the front. Own it. Thank you. Um, I don't know what to say really except we are yeah we're just not very good at owning our achievements generally I think especially women um so we'll we'll move swiftly on Claire so we're talking about the media well let's talk about social media so you're a prolific tweeter and yet I've seen you suffer plenty of abuse (laughs) on Twitter as well and I mean sometimes from the outside it just looks like such a toxic environment to be in and I want to ask you is it worth it? No, it's not worth it. It's just very toxic. I, I've decided when I get to 50,000, I'll stop. Really? Uh, Can we hold yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible space. It's a good space for reading about what's going on. Uh, really good space for finding out what's topical. But people on social media are determined to be offended and to be hurt and to misunderstood, misunderstand what you're saying. They're determined to, to bring others into a fight. And I now. I'm very mindful of what I put on social media and I quite often delete my tweets, not because they're rude, but I just think I just I don't want people taking this the wrong way. And and social media is a really good way of taking things the wrong way. And, and there was one recently and I was trying to explain that hospital doctors during the pandemic have been so busy, they've not had time to seek help and also not had time to actually Uh, do the things that might make their life a bit easier. And this was taken completely out of context. Oh, you're against hospital doctors. I'm not. It's the complete opposite. But people are ready to be offended on social media, unlike any other space. So we'll we'll wait till you get to your 50,000. I'm determined. It might be tonight, Claire. You probably got No, no, it won't be tonight. Let me tag you in a tweet about the podcast and then you can leave. I'll be a lurker. I'll be a lurker. I can't not ask you about mental health, Claire, and you you kind of, uh, forgive me if I'm not following the right lead, but you alluded to your own mental health earlier as well. You talked about the impact that things have had on you personally. And I want to know from a leadership perspective, how has that impacted on your mental health? What advice would you give to young leaders about their mental health? Leadership is lonely. I mean, you know, let's not over If you live long enough, everybody's going to get depressed. It's just impossible not to get depressed. It, it, and by that, I mean, you know, low mood, uh, you know, not just a bit of sadness, but, and I've been burnt out. I write about it in my book. During 
the chairmanship, it was hard. And I lost a staggering amount of weight. I mean, I went down to seven and a half stone, you know, and it was, I was very anxious. And it wasn't, and you do get catastrophic thoughts, but it was tough. But of course, you have to appear invincible. You can't appear vulnerable. You've just got to, you know, you've just got to get on with it. And the way I dealt with it is I started a course on group analysis, which actually is a vicarious way of getting therapy, because if you do a therapeutic training, you have to do the therapy that you're you're learning in. So I went and joined a group for three or four years, which was immensely helpful. And since then, I have a supervisor. And the supervisor, to be honest, is like a therapist. So you, I go once a week. I talk about all the bits that are going on, you know, the different roles in my life. And he listens, and then I walk away. And, and actually, I think it's as important now to me doing that as keeping fit and going to the gym. But it took a long time to even admit that I had had problems ever because you don't have problems when you're Claire Gerarda and the head of the Royal College. So it's only in recent years, in fact, the first time I admitted it was in a book, which I won't tell you the title, but I said to the person, the editor, I said, I'm going to talk about this. And I talked about it a little bit, but I said, I'm never, I, I knew the book would never sell. So nobody ever found that. But I sent some draft copies to various people who said, you can't say this. So I did dilute down what I was saying. But I'm writing my autobiography now, and I'll talk more about things like that. You know, that's exactly what Next Gen is about, Claire. It's about getting to understand that leaders in positions, even such as yours, are real people with real problems. And if we don't talk about it, how mm. are people at my stage ever going to feel that they can admit that they have a problem? Mm. You could hear the hesitation in your voice there. You said mm. supervisor and it took you a while yes. to say therapist. <laughs> yes. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And you talked mm. about physical fitness. We don't talk about mental fitness. No, no. But I admire yeah. the way that you've just come out and said that. So thank you so much, because that's mm. going to really hit home to a lot of people. It will hit home. It took me a long time, uh, even now. It, and you know, here am I running a, a doctor-only service uh, where we advocate. But uh, I, what struck me for a while was I was the doctor's doctor. Where does the doctor's doctor go to when the doctor's doctor needs doctoring? Took a long time for me to get around that and to admit that even the doctor's doctor struggles and needs help. Absolutely. And we can say the same for all of us. You know, how do we help other people if we can't help ourselves first? And I really appreciate you sharing that story, Claire, and for the work that you've done with PHP, because it has saved lives of people that I personally have known. Which is why I needed to practice what I preached. Because Absolutely. it was ridiculous going around feeling that way and thinking, I'm working in the very space that can offer help and then finding it very difficult to do that. But it took a lot of getting around the houses before I could admit my vulnerability. And you talked about before, about letting people down, and that's something I want to pick mm. up on, if you don't mind, in yeah, terms of course. Of home life. So what was quite interesting was, I know you, you won't remember this, but when I shadowed you as a fifth-year medical student, I said to you, Claire, what advice would mm. you give me? And you said things to me, which at the time I was, I don't know, it was like 20 or something. It didn't make much sense. But you said, when you get children, get really good childcare. And yet I hear a sense of regret in your voice when you talk about that too, which I've never heard before. Mm. I don't think you can have a, a, a leadership role and, well, maybe you can. Maybe I'm just, you know, I was going to say, and, and not make sacrifices. 
if I was to go back and do something differently, I wish I'd taken Fridays off, <laughs> a day a week off. I wish I'd spent a bit more time with the children, not because they wanted me to, but because I wanted to. It's, you know, those years when they come running into your arms at the end of nursery and you're the most amazing. And those years when they're growing up and they're trying to ignore you and you embarrass them, but they really <laughs> want you there. And those years when they need help with homework, but you, I did take, in my early 40s, I did take five months off because I got overwhelmingly uh, just heartbroken that I wasn't seeing them. And I spent five months with them, which overlapped with the summer. And it was wonderful. And it really energized me. And I, I suppose it gave me the fix I needed. But it's not that they've suffered. I think I also told you that you have to accept guilt. Yes, you did. And guilt's your emotion, not theirs. If you give your children unconditional love consistently, then then kids just get on with anything. In fact, I still see them, but I missed them. I missed them. You know, and it's not that this is always the best age. If I was to take maternity leave now, and by the way, I took 20 weeks with the first and five weeks with the second. If I was to take maternity leave now, I'd take it when they were 13, which is when I think they probably need you the most. And, of course, you're married to Professor Sir Simon Wesley, who we probably can't not talk about. And I'm interested in the family dynamic behind closed doors. You were talking there about spending time with your children, and I just wondered, you know, being married to someone who's also reaching the highest of heights in their field, did that influence your drive? I mean, were you both competitive at all? We are competitive, but we didn't compete for that so I can remember for example Simon writing academic papers now if I hadn't been married to Simon I may never have written an academic paper it's not that he helped me he didn't help me but we had a computer and a printer which sounds weird but it meant you had the machinery in order to do that sort of stuff and I can remember him saying when we, we'd had a row when the children were little and he'd been out I remember him saying if it's important enough for me to be out, it's really important. I don't easily not be at home. And that was the, 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 that was the real light bulb moment that we gave each other permission to not be at home and to and real permission. And even now, I mean, even now coming out of the pandemic, we're out. We go out separately, though we always touch base, you know, two or three times a week. And I suppose, Nisha, if I was to say that's what allowed me, there wasn't this husband at home saying where's the food why is the house not clean we spent money on cleaning the house you know the only time he ever did it was when I trained for the marathon I think he slightly was jealous that I could do a marathon and he couldn't so he would hate me going out for those four-hour runs so I was chair of council he hadn't even thought about being president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists I think I said to him why don't you try it uh and then he did and he got it but he's you know he's a really fabulous academic fabulous and he does tease me you know we're lying there our pillow talk is what is your h index now of course i had no idea what h index academics yeah exactly it's what your your academic index so it's a it's a mark of status and and it counts the number of publications you have and etc how many times it's been referenced and his is something like 90 and if you're more than your age it's really good okay (laughs) and mine is something like 15 so 
I love the way that you've also encouraged and pushed each other. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, we do. We do encourage, I, you know, and, and we don't keep each other back. When he was once looking at a job in, in Berlin, fine, let me see if I can get a job in Berlin. That's the sort of thing that, that we would agree on. So, yeah, but then I suppose that comes from being in a relationship, doesn't it? Mm. We won't mention Desert Island Desks, don't worry. Well, it was a lovely Desert Island Desk. I am <laughs> very jealous that he's been asked to do it and I haven't. But... Well, you've been asked to do this, Claire, and he hasn't. Oh, yes. This is, this is like and... Desert Island Desks without the distraction. Without the music, yeah. <laughs> so, Claire, I just want to zoom out a bit as we get to the end of the podcast. Um, when I was introducing you, it really struck me that you have done so many different roles in your career, probably many more to come as well. And of course, many GPs now are increasingly taking on portfolio roles. How have you found balancing so many different jobs? Yeah, I've done this. I've always done three jobs at the same time, but they've always been slightly intermeshed with each other. So it's not so, for example, gambling now with practitioner health, slightly intermeshed. Of course, they're not the same patients, but it's the same mechanism. It's the same MDT. So the piece of advice I would give is that please don't give up the clinical work till you're my age. Even now, I do clinical work. Not general practice now. I do men- mental illness psychiatry. But y- you can do all these other things. But if you want to be taken seriously, you have to get the hours in in terms of, in terms of the clinical work. But equally, I would say general practice affords itself to be able to do portfolio, and it's lovely. And don't make an error on the, the clinical. It, you leave the phone behind in reception. If you're head of a royal college and you're called because you need to speak to the prime minister and you miss something, there is no way the prime minister or anybody else is going to say, oh, well, she was doing a really important thing on that day. The, the thing that matters is the clinical work. Do not scrimp or save on that. That has to come first uh, and your patients have to come first albeit you might do two or three or four sessions, but don't try and multitask in the consulting room ever, ever. You will you will make an error and you will live to regret it. Mm. And looking back at all the different hats that you've worn, what mm. has been your proudest moment? The HIV, the, the drug using work. That if I was to say, which is odd because I got my damehood for the practitioner health and I love that and I got my MBE for the addiction work. But if I think about, making a difference, really saving lives. You see, there you are, I'm understated telling about this, but saving lives in a space and time when absolutely nobody was doing that and really changing how things happen, not just the patients, but all the, the scaffolding around it. I think I'm most proud of that, working with drug users. It's interesting that you don't mention there a title or a position you're talking about actual change that you made yes. on the ground. That is the equivalent of my dad going to Nigeria for 15 years, going down the Walworth Road into community drug project and Cader on the Old Kent Road is my equivalent. And you also gave me some advice, Claire, which I have found very useful. You said, always look out for your next opportunity. Yes. And you said, keep an eye on BMJ jobs and keep an, keep an eye ahead. So I want yes. to ask you what's What's in BMJ jobs now for you? What are you looking for? Well, I did for? look this week. <laughs> I have looked. Uh, there's nothing in there that attracts me. Uh, there are only, there are two jobs that I would conceivably think of at the end of 
One is it's not really a job, but I would love to be president of the Royal College of GPs. And then after that, if I was to ever get that, I would love a job which doesn't exist at the moment, which is head of an arm's length body looking at the health and well-being of the NHS workforce. If you'd so, like to create that niche with your influence. <laughs> with my influence. I just think someone <laughs> half this podcast is going to reach out and find you that job. So sort of a, a chief people officer for primary care, do you mean? It, it is a, it's the equivalent of CQC or the equivalent of Henrietta Hughes's Speaking Out Guardian. It, it's, the, it's about the well-being of the workforce. So it's about the mental health and well-being. It's pulling all things together, looking at the evidence, making sure things are coordinated. So the final round is quick fire, if that's okay. We've never actually done this before with anyone, but I feel like I know you well enough that I'm going to give this a go. I've stolen lots of these questions from other people like Brené Brown. So what's something that people often get wrong about you? Oh, they think they think I'm a flippity jit. They think I'm um, what's the word? They think I'm impulsive. I'm absolutely opposite. Okay. What's the last thing you binged on Netflix? Uh, Come Dine With Me, but I also did something called, I can't remember its name. Oh, what's it called? Oh, so good. Let me tell you what it is. It's called Arresting, Arrest Me. Have you seen it? No. Absolutely. So funny. And you really need to watch it. Okay, I'll look that one up. Can you give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you joy? Playing with Lego. Really? Lego, I love it. Okay. Something that keeps you up at night? Oh, my dog. It's coming <laughs> continent. I shouldn't laugh, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. What have you learned about yourself over lockdown? Oh, I've learned how much I love patients. And I miss them, miss seeing them. What one book would you recommend to everyone listening to this? Uh, oh, I don't know. Uh... Oh, there's Simon. Maybe we can ask him. Well, he's done his Desert Islandist already, hasn't he? Where's Simon? Hello, Simon. I'm the end of the end. What one book would I recommend? Oh, I don't know. NHS SOS. Read it. Read about what happened to me during the Health and Social Care Act. OK, on that theme, who was your favourite health secretary? Very interesting. I actually think, in retrospect, Jeremy Hunt. Why do you say that? Uh, Stephen Dorrell, I love and I think he's fabulous. But I think Jeremy Hunt has done more for patient care and has and he's been the longest serving health minister that's ever been. But I'm going to ask for a second one. I think mm. Simon Stevens, because really he's done more for the NHS than anybody else other than Bevan. Would you apply for his job? Never. In a month of Sundays. <laughs> Why not? It's too hard. I don't want to work that like that. It's too hard. What's the one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Simon. Stevens or Wesley? (laughs) (laughs) Last one, last one. What are your top three tips for new leaders? Uh, Top two tips, right. The first one is don't worry too much. You'll make a mistake. The second one is surround yourself by people you trust and take their advice. And the third one is make sure you buy childcare. Okay. I remember you said to me once, you said, always make people better off speaking to you yes, before do. they met you and yes. you've done that for me so thank I you love you so much. you're fabulous thank you Claire so that was episode 19 with Dame Claire Gerarda and I really enjoyed learning about how her values have been shaped by her father and her upbringing 
what she's learnt really from being the tenacious and outspoken leader that she's known to be. And more than anything, I don't think I've ever heard her be so open and vulnerable about her regrets and the impact that her experiences have had on her own mental health and how she even had to get help for that. Oh, and in case you're wondering, the Netflix programme that she was trying to remember but couldn't, um, she told me later, was called Arrested Development. So that's it for episode 19. We'll be back soon with episode 20. And in the meantime, if you want to keep in touch with NextGen, maybe join one of our programmes or our webinars, sign up to our monthly bulletin at bit.ly forward slash nggpbulletin. And we'll see you soon for episode 20. Bye.